You're listening to episode 160 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? We have New York Times bestselling author Lori Haltz Anderson, most recognized for her works Speak, Chains, and her newly released memoir Shout on today's episode. Before we move forward, please note that this episode contains content and discussion around sexual violence, so if this is triggering, please skip this episode. And now before we get into introductions, I want to take a moment to thank Four Sigmatic, today's sponsor supporting our work as a go-to community for storytellers. I am so excited about this partnership because Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees, teas, and cacaos that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm going to get into all the details about what that means at the end of the show, so be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. By the way, our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash 88 cups of tea, or use our special code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Now, whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first time tuning into 88 cups of tea, I am so happy you're here. If you're enjoying the show and haven't hit the subscribe button or submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts just yet, I would be so grateful if you could please take a moment to do that. Your reviews, yes yours, give new listeners a sneak peek on what to expect from the show. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more we get featured so more people can find us and join our storyteller community and ultimately feel less alone in their creative pursuits. So a huge thank you in advance for doing that. Now on to today's podcast guest, we have the one and only Lori Haltz Anderson. Lori is an award-winning young adult author widely known for her novels Speak and Chains, both of which are National Book Award finalists and her newly released and highly acclaimed memoir Shout. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of community and how we can work towards healing from the damages from sexual violence. Further into the episode, we talk about writing and the difference between inspiration and craft and how Lori uses kindness in her revision process. Later on, we dive into censorship and why it's crucial for stories like Shout to be available to younger audiences and ways to approach sensitive research topics and strategies on handling rejection. Now let's just jump right into the conversation. I have a copy of your book as well in my hands. And number one, the cover is gorgeous. It's stunning. I had a book cover boner, as I'd like to say, because (laughs) it just really turned me on. I was like, wow, this is a sexy cover. Could you give the listeners a snapshot in your own words of what to expect from this? Yeah, this um, this is who I am. This is the life, I think, of a pretty typical kid trying to make sense of a family that had issues, 
trying to make sense of a family where hard things weren't discussed because that's what I grew up with. And then um, when I was raped when I was 13, my world obviously blew apart. Um, and so I didn't have the kind of family structure where I could turn to my parents or literally turn to anyone to talk about those things. So, um, so I guess if you look at the sections of the book, there's the opening poetry sets you in who I was as a kid, what happened to me, how I floundered for years after becoming a victim of sexual violence, and then how that eventually all led to the writing of Speak. That gets you to about the halfway, and then, so that's sort of my experience. And then the second half of the book is largely me reflecting on all of the stories that I've heard from all of the incredible survivors of sexual violence. This is me on the page. Oh, that was so beautiful. Okay, for me, when I read through your entire book, and this is something listeners know, I'm a very slow reader. So normally, I don't always have the chance to read everybody's books who's been on the show. And I blew through this book, your book, you last night within a couple of hours. So that is how powerful it was. I could not put it down. And it resonated deeply. And so for me, I think what really stood out to me, like you mentioned, you were going through this at a time when there was no support system. There was no one there for you. And I think what really stood out to me was that if it had been a different circumstance, where how would it be like right now? And also particularly your relationship with your mom. Mm. And I think that's something a lot of daughters yearn and seek. And maybe it's, I'm also self-projecting. And that's just my, that's my lens of my truth, right? Because those are my experiences. So I do feel like many women and me talking to friends to a lot of what we deeply seek and deeply yearn for is many times reflective of our relationships with our mothers, no matter how different they are. And I do wonder for your mom at the time, if she was more open to talking, period, right? Is this something where you would have felt comfortable to approach her and to share with her? Um, My mother would have had to have been a completely different person. Yeah. Um, I mean, just... uh... You know, I think this is an interesting, I really love the way you just phrased that, first of all. And I'm so honored that you were able to blow through the book in, in one night. That kind of, that's, thank you very much. Um, this book really um, is, is an exploration of feminism in action. Um, because for me, feminism is treating all people with grace and love. And because we've been, all of us have been raised in this, in a kind of a patriarchal culture for so long, there's a lot of, there's a lot of repair for us to do in our relationships as women with other women. And that often goes back to the relationships with our mothers, our grandmothers, our aunties. Um, because most of us had moms who were not treated with care and love. And I know, I, you know, there's a lot other other stories I could have spun about my grandmothers and great grandmothers, and the stuff they went through too. Um, but I think it's important for us as women to recognize that a lot of us have uh, fraught relationships with our moms. Um, a lot of 
you know, there's still a part of me that's so five years old and so wanting her to be um, more available emotionally. Um, and I know that like in my, in my relationship with my daughters, you know, it's, it's funny, you try to, as a mom, you're like, oh, I'm going to be better. And it's really so much about fulfilling your own needs for being mothered when you get to mother other people. Um, but yeah, I, I think it makes sense um, for us, you know, as, as those of us who care about making the world a better place and care about the people in our lives is, is to understand that most of us are walking around pretty wounded. Um, and in my experience, it doesn't, it's not very helpful. I mean, it feels good, but it's not very constructive to go, wow, my mom was such a whatever. Um, but just to acknowledge that, that moms, our moms and grandmothers had even fewer tools to work with than we have now. And so how are we going to help each other in the world as sisters, right? Um, if we could, if all women could look at each other as sisters, um, and be good sisters, that would help us enormously. Ooh, there was the piece where you wrote, I believe it was towards the end, where there were women who have gone through similar experiences of abuse and rape and sexual harassment, how they buried it so deep inside of them. And then instead of being a sister to help carry and lean on each other, they end up turning the other way to then rise above. They think that that is a way to survive. What was that piece inspired by? Do you know which piece I'm specifically talking about? Yeah, yeah. I can find the title here in a second. It's Claws Out. Claws Out. Yes, yes. It's so powerful. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age. And... uh, (laughs) And I've seen other women my age and older um, who were really, you know, let's be very clear, the amount of sexual violence that generations previous suffered is pretty much what we're dealing with today. But And we are just now beginning to crack the door open in terms of developing a culture where victims are, feel safe coming forward and, not, you know, maybe even a little supported. And so there's a lot of women my age and older who had to tough it out. And that toughness is, you know, part of their identity, right? It's like, you know, they they created their own shell to protect themselves, which is an excellent survival strategy. But um, it makes me, it irritates me, actually, more than irritates, pisses me all the way off. When I see them requiring the new generation to play by the rules that they were forced into a long time ago. And saying, well, we had to put up with it. What's wrong? You know, and they're just so, it's so demeaning, uh, frankly, very patriarchal. Um, and, and it's damaging. And, and, but I know it's my, my real inclinations, I just want to go toe to toe with those ladies, right? Like get in their face. But that's like the exact wrong way to do it. Because they're, what, when I see that reaction, what I see is a person who is deeply, deeply wounded and still bleeding. So what do you feel, how do you think they can heal? Because another big question for me when I finished your book, also from own personal experiences, is how we heal as adults when we were never given those tools as kids. You were not, I was not, most of us were denied of them. Um, Maybe there are times that some of us have asked for help, 
uh, from the people we trust and were turned away. They didn't believe what we were saying from your work that you've done, because this has been years and years where you've put your first work, speak out, spoke about sexual violence and having to meet so many people throughout the years. How do you... I I don't even really have an answer for this. So I'm genuinely asking, like, do you think that there is a way to heal? My own experience, I feel like healing is really finding those who are in your corner without any doubt. And just saying, I believe you, it helps to inch towards healing. So from your experience, how do you think adults who weren't provided the tools, how would they start to look towards healing? What kind of tools now that are available to us? That is the finest question I think I've ever been asked. And I've, it's, it's, I've never heard that question before. So this is really exciting. Thank you. It's such an important thing to talk about, right? Because the adults in the world are the people who will be responsible for the raising up of our next generation. And if the adults themselves continue just to be walking, you know, in their own nightmare, they can't be their best selves. And they certainly will struggle. I can't imagine how they could provide a good model for conversations with the next generation about rape culture and things like that. The first and foremost thing is that everybody is responsible for their own healing. And when you're friends or you love somebody and you know that they're struggling with this, it's so tempting to rush in and fix it, right? I have all the ingredients to fix you. And boy, that never works. Never, ever. So being really clear as, um, you know, as a friend or a bystander about the boundaries between who you are and who this person is and honoring that person's boundaries, even if you think they're messing up, because their boundaries have already been destroyed by this act of violence. And you don't want to compound that by rushing in, right? You know, make sure that you're listening more than you're speaking. And I think there are some remarkable resources uh, on the web. My favorite organization in the whole world is RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, who, uh, there's lots of great organizations out there, um, but RAIN is one of the, the largest and most encompassing. They have anonymous hotlines, online chats, and tons of resources. They have specific pages on their website for friends of survivors. How do you help? For a lot of survivors, looking at some of the statistics is really enlightening. Most of us who were raped back in the day, or even now, we feel it's somehow our fault. And we're so shocked because in most cases, the rapist is somebody that the victim knows often very well. If you are under age 18, you know your, you know your, your attacker in 93% of the cases. If you're older than 18, it's 70% of the cases. So there's, so now you have a compounded problem, which is not only have you been through a psychological and physical trauma that has long-term effects, but your ability to trust people has been severely damaged because usually a trust was really broken in this attack. Um, so starting with information um, and recognizing that, that the, the person who is the victim is the person who gets to call 
the shots here. They get to decide on the pace of disclosure, if they're going to disclose, um, and, and providing them with support. It took me 25 years before I told anybody that I had been raped. Um, I think like a lot of victims, at least in my generation, I put it to the corner of my mind and I just tried to, you know, carry on. And the reason that I finally sought treatment 25 years after I was raped was that I realized that I was, I was kind of a mess. You know, I got married early, had my kids, went through the motions, but was uh, not a great partner for my first husband because I had so many issues with trust. And I was not being a great mother because I was so depressed. It's very common to have long-term PTSD after being raped. And it was when I realized how much I was failing my kids that I recognized I needed to get some help. So that's when I finally saw a therapist. And that's when my, my life changed that day. I'm not sure if they shared with you which specific treatment does help with long-term PTSD, because I know there's multiple different forms of therapy. Yes, there are. And, and this was about 20, uh, let me think, this was about, this was in the mid-1990s that I went into therapies. And I think there's been some really great science um, and advancement of the scholarship in terms of um, how to effectively work with people. Um, so I went to a counselor and, and I was just there for my depression um, and for a marriage that was not working for anybody. And she listened to me for a couple of months and I, and it kind of stagnated and it was just me going and talking. Um, and I was also starting to journal a lot during this period. I was clearly ready to start digging down um, and looking at, beginning to look at my family structure because my dad was still kind of in a bad way at that point. And then I got really frustrated one day in the, in the session with the therapist. And I said to her, I don't think this is working. You know, I've been here coming here for months and that's very common. Um, you know, and, and she was so, I actually, this is, this, she's, this is part of why I dedicated speak in part to uh, my therapist, bless her. <laughs> um, and she said, you know, when your session is over, I've got an extra hour. Would you like to stay and we'll just do a double session? And boy, oh boy, looking back, I was raised with a lot of the same, although from a different cultural background, a lot of that, the same notions with my mom's attitude towards therapy and, and getting mental illness and getting support and stuff. My mom was like, you know, she was a queen of stoicism. But that second hour is what I needed. I needed because I had to lower my defenses, right? I'm always thinking in terms of Star Trek metaphors, <laughs> just to, to go really random here for a second. And you know, when you're on the Enterprise, when your shields are up, right, you can't shoot your weapons. But when your shields are up, you can't, like, the transporter won't work either. Nobody can come on board. You can't leave, right? You have to have your shields down to mm. interact with the world. Um and that second hour in a row of being with this woman with whom I had developed a very strong, trusting relationship at that point, I let my shields down. And boy, did I cry for the first time um, since, since the rape happened. And I had tears of, of lots of things that flew that day. And, you know, I, what I've seen in a lot of family structures, when, when there's a family member 
that other other relatives are like, ah, you really need to go talk to somebody, is that sometimes they that the family member that everyone is concerned about needs to see a model of that behavior. They need somebody else in the family to go to therapy and to see that it's a good thing. And just to, you know, get, you don't have to like spill everything that happens in your own therapy sessions, but just to, 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 this is what it looks like. This is how you find the person, right? This is how you, you know, how are you going to pay for it? Does insurance cover it? Do you need some help? Whatever. And then to see, see another, somebody you trust actually getting healthier being happier, being more content as a result of this. That's a great way um, to help someone, you know, walk the next, because when people get, it sounds like, like people are, can be, you know, people are stuck, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not dealing with their pain, they get to a certain age and they get stuck in these habits. Um, and if they can see somebody get unstuck, sometimes that will inspire them. Oh my gosh, my brain is just, it's just going right now and just thinking about my own experiences and how I've shared positive feedback with a friend about a therapy session that I was recently going to. And then I remember she suddenly asked, can I have the information? Mm. Um, how did you get a hold of the therapist? What is that organization called? Um, how, and I think she did ask if they accepted insurance and and that's so true. But the thing is, I never really gave that opportunity. I never really shared that side with my own mother. I mentioned like, yes, I'm seeing therapists. She's like, good, go, you know, please. <laughs> but the thing is, I didn't reflect that behavior of post-therapy with my mom, because I think there's just something when you go back home, like, you know, everybody understands this with holidays, for example. Right. You just go back home and you're suddenly pigeonholed back into who they saw you as uh, growing up that rebellious teenager or whoever. And, you know, things from the past will be brought up. So it's, it's not good. Cause then that behavior just shows like, whoa, you're the same. You didn't change what, okay. This therapy, is it really working? So I wasn't being a great example of how that could be helpful and beneficial with the ones that were closest to me. How writing this emotionally, did it, trigger any PTSD for you? Or do you feel like you are in a place where you're feeling more safe and you have a safe space because of the tools that we now have and that you actively went out to seek those tools? How was it like writing this for you? Um, Writing this book made me feel like I was made of fire. I could not have written it um, any earlier. Um, I had to raise my kids. I had to raise myself. (laughs) Um, I had to find my voice and write, um, write some books that that folks liked, write some books that were um, never saw the light of day (laughs) and never will. And I also had to work through, you know, I took care of my parents for the last decade of their lives and, you know, through nurse them through their last illnesses and kind of we had to we had more with my father than my mother because my mom was just pretty stuck in who she was. But um, being able to love my parents at the end of their lives and spend a lot of time with them was incredibly healing for me, just in terms of who, you know, the little girl in me. Um, and I think that, you know, I've been just so 
fortunate and blessed by the opportunities to listen to so many survivors, you know, and talk to them. And um, we hug a lot when I'm on book tour, right? I have a lot of tears on the shoulders of my sweaters. And I just feel so honored that people are willing to share those stories with me. When we share our stories of pain, it's actually in a strange way kind of strengthening. Um, it's the same way uh, when you sing with more than one voice and you can find the resonance, right, with two voices or three or five or however many, you will often hit notes or, or develop chords where the, the strength of the music coming out of your bodies is so much, it's so amplified um, by, much, by a factor of much more than the number of people in the room. The same things happen when we are sharing our moments of weakness, sharing our moments of pain, of fear. Um, when you, in that sharing, there is a strengthening. Um, so that was going on in my life for 20 years after Speak came out. So I'd already done the therapy, right? I wrote this book. I, I wrote the book in a, the fiction, Speak is not the story of me. It's about 10% of me, but it's definitely an emotional truth. This is what we often do when we're writing. We take an emotional truth of our own experience and we transmute it, transform it through uh, the craft um, of writing. And, and it winds up being a different character on the page. Um, so that was the first part. The second part for me was um, learning how to be present for, for people learning when they disclose and learning how to be a really good listener. Um, and then 20 years of that also gets, you know, transformed and transmuted and comes out as shout. Um, the, so the writing, there were a couple of poems and a couple of moments that leveled me, really gutted me. Um, and that was all the work that was going to get done that day. I took a lot of long walks when I was working on this book. Um, and, uh, but ultimately it was, um, I think other than birthing a child, the most powerful physical experience of my life was writing this book. Do you mind sharing which were the pieces or maybe even one that, that you just mentioned that truly yeah. gutted you? Yeah, let me let me see if I can find it. Thank um, you. So, um, for the listeners who haven't read the book, after I was raped, I fell apart and did a lot of drugs in ninth grade, and that was not very effective in terms of moving my life forward. Um, and so, I finally stopped doing the drugs and um, became a jock, and I escaped high school early by becoming an exchange student, which was really great. And then when I came back home from Denmark, I eventually got a degree at a community college, which I loved. And then I got an, a scholarship to go to a big fancy university. And it was like time to really leave home. And I wrote a poem called Calving Iceberg. And it was about when we, my family and I uh, woke up early and they drove me from Northern New York to Washington DC for this college. and. It was really, we all knew this was, this was goodbye that I was, I could, because we, we lived out in the boondocks. I could never 
uh, get enough a summer job there to earn the money that I needed. So I stayed in D.C. after that for good. And so this was the moment of saying goodbye to my infuriating, confusing, very beloved family members, my mom, my dad, and my sister, as we were all just packing, my, you know, putting the stuff in the drawers in my dorm room. And then because my parents were poor, they couldn't afford a hotel, they had to drive back home that night, and I was alone in this room. And oh man, <laughs> I wept for hours after writing this poem. Because, you know, when you, when, especially like when you are a teen or in your 20s, um, when, when you're still having so many new experiences as a human, um, when the first time you have a, like a, a devastating emotional experience when your emotions are just on 11, right? Mm-hmm. It's often so hard. You don't, have, you don't, you can't even process it. It's so hard to process. So you put it away. You just like get busy because you can't think about it. Because if you let yourself think about it, you will be paralyzed with sadness. And I, when I wrote that poem, it was, it's, and I all credit to my, my editor, Kendra Levin, who, uh, when I had submitted some early rashes of, of poems, she said, you know, there's this spot here when you're transitioning, we need more information. Can you tell me what it was like when mm. you went to this university? And, and thank you, Kendra Levin, because that was a great suggestion. I had not thought about that since I saw my parents station wagon drive away. And the reason I hadn't thought about it is because it hurt so damn much. Um, but you know, it was lovely, you know, the flip side of all that pain, once I, once the swelling in my eyes (laughs) went down from crying for hours, it's like, wow, what, what came with that, being able to put that down on paper was now I can, I can just hold that love. I can recognize it for up as my family was. There was a lot of love there. We just, we all spoke different languages of love and we didn't hear each other really well, but it was there. You know, what hit me the most was when your mom, you seeing her in the car leaving, having the breakdown, it hit me. I'm like, wow, that was the most that she ever spoke. Yeah. That was the most she ever expressed to you at least from what I read for all the pages before that, yeah. it was her voice, her truth. Mm-hmm. And you saw it clearly. It was so powerful. I'm glad. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Our community being writers, dealing with stories that are very difficult and very challenging to tap into. And I think many times to if they're writing characters based off of people who are still living. And I, I, I won't forget this because I know you said your father mentioned in the very mm-hmm. beginning, treat the living kindly, but the ones who've passed have owned their strength or owned who they are. Oh gosh, I totally butchered that. Here, so I, have the, I have the line right here. Because <laughs> my, da- my dad was a poet among many other things. Here's what daddy said. We must be gentle with the living but the dead own their truth and are fearless. Because my dad wrote some poems about some family members. So he knew that I would be writing poems about the, our family too. Mm. And that's what he said. He said, when someone's alive, you, cause you don't know, right? Like if a person is still living their life, it's not right to render judgment. Mm. Um, 
and their lives are incomplete. But yeah, once someone's gone, then you can tell your version of what you saw in their life. Um, that was one of the greatest gifts my father. I was going to say, how lucky are you that he right. just gave you that permission? Yeah. Now is your time to just speak your truth. And, and I think that's something that I wonder too, for those who are figuring out clearly a story inside of them that they need, mm. they need to pull out, they need to put on paper. And it's also transformative for them when they do and they mm. grow and evolve as people. But I guess we follow your father's advice is you treat the living kindly then, huh? And then don't really touch too much of that when they're alive because it does mess with their livelihood. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's two pieces of this. And this is one of our superpowers as writers <laughs> is that we get to write drafts that the world doesn't see. That's true. Right. And, and it can be, you know, if, 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 if a writer's like working on some stuff, if they've been harmed, if they've been hurt, if they're, you know, they get to write whatever the hell they want. Um, if, and when, the time comes to publish that essay or short story or novel or fantasy or whatever. Um, then that writer has to decide for him, her or themselves, um, you know, do I want to alter this before it goes out into the world? Do I want to sit on it until this person passes on to their greater reward? What, or, you know, everyone has their own plot, but I think, there, what, what we're really talking about here is the difference between inspiration and craft. For me, that's how I think about my early drafts and my revisions. My early drafts are, are pouring my soul onto the paper. Um, and that, that is such, such a cleansing, strengthening thing for me as a writer. But then when I, when I begin the revision process to, with the aim of publication, and not everything has to be published, right? But if I'm going to revise something with the hope that someday somebody will turn it into a book with me and we can share it with the world, that's when I start thinking about, all right, um, where do I need to let kindness uh, mm. help me with this revision? Okay, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here. What if this the person passes and this person leaves behind family members or, um, you know, next of kin yeah. and that, and that kin has never been aware of situations like that. Then mm. where is that fine line where you silence yourself to save their own sanity versus your own sanity? Mm, that's such an important question. Um, what, and what I love about questions like that, especially in a world where we're encouraged by our consumer culture to spend so much time on stuff that really is meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what it is to be a human being, is to wrestle with questions like this and to wrestle with, um, you know, do you as, let's just, I'm going to create a hypothetical. Do you as somebody who has survived um, violence or trauma at the hands of another person, do you, should you continue to exist in that silence and trauma to protect other people? Um, or as part of your own growth and healing, do you process it through story, which mm -hmm. is the old human way of doing things, recognizing that that is um, that has the potential to harm, like you said, relatives, 
of the bad person. Um, and there's a couple of things you have to be clear about what you know and what you don't know. For, first, the hypothetical bad guy here might have harmed those people too. They might be struggling in their own silence and their own shame. Do you, you know, if does the writer have a close enough relationship with these ancillary relatives to have conversations first? Mm. Um, and ultimately, uh, my first inclination is always write it first, you know, write in the heat and then let it cool. The power is not used enough. The power of putting a piece of writing aside for a couple of months is, is really useful. And then pull it out and, um, and see. Sometimes, you know, you have to walk your own path. Everyone's got to figure out their own stuff. Sometimes that inclination to shield other people is a really, <laughs> really clever form of avoiding dealing with what happened. Mm. Well, if I just don't talk about it. And sometimes that's a really rational and smart thing to do. You know, it's like, this is only going to hurt other people. I survived this. I've worked through it. Why bring it up? Uh, and that's something that only each writer can answer for themselves. Oh, thank you for putting it in that perspective. So, Lori, I do want to touch a little bit on Speak and how it was banned in many schools. And I want to, I do wonder, had, I mean, it's very obvious they banned it because they had no idea how to approach serious conversations that make people uncomfortable. If these schools or these teachers and these parents came up to you and said, Hey, Lori, listen, I'm, we have, we are thinking about banning speak because we don't like if they had enough courage to come to you to say that we don't know how to deal with these conversations. We don't know what to do after your book has um, inspired the children, the students to speak up. We don't know what to do from there. Well, I wonder, has anyone ever mentioned that? Has a school that was thinking about banning it or a teacher or, or parents, has anyone ever mentioned to you like, hey, I'm, I actually really am not equipped. I don't know what to do if my daughter comes to me or if my son comes to me. I would not know what to do. Or if a teacher has any of them, have any of them ever? Usually what happens is a teacher will reach out after the decision has been made by the administration, um, often at the insistence of a very angry parent, mm -hmm. to remove the book. Um, sometimes to remove it from the classroom, the curriculum, sometimes to remove it from the library. One guy tried to get it removed from the public libraries, too. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, that was fun. Um, and my, my first question, whenever I'm, I hear about these censorship or potential censorship situations, and also I've talked to parents who are very uneasy about this, um, because it's exactly what you think. When parents don't want their kids reading this book, this just happened this week, um, a teacher reached out to me on Twitter, um, it's because parents don't know how to talk about this to their kids. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's because their parents didn't talk to them. And the first question I always ask is, in your child's school, do your kids have access to newspapers, whether it's physical newspapers or online databases, online news? Is, is like being aware of the world around them part of your curriculum? And everyone goes, of course, <laughs> right? We're trying mm -hmm. to educate our kids. And then I point out to them that I've never put anything in a book that the kids can't see in a newspaper every single day. That this is a reflection of the world that we live in and just the way we as parents accept our responsibility to teach our children when they're small how to look both ways when they're crossing the road. We have our responsibility to teach our children about their bodies, about consent, about healthy sexuality and about sexual violence is every Brit as critical and important as teaching them to look both ways before they cross the road. And when parents don't do that, they fail their kids. They are failing their responsibility as parents. Um, and that's harsh and it's meant to be harsh because there's a reason that about one out of four women in this United States have been sexually abused, sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And that there's that many, and it's overwhelmingly the victims are female, are, have bodies that they identify as female, and overwhelmingly the perpetrators are male. Although clearly men can be victims, boys can be victims, the transgendered community is, is horribly victimized by sexual violence. But the adults in the room have to gather their strength to the, you know, to the sticking point and face their own fears about talking about this. So uh, what I say is I first always lean on RAIN, lean on the resources offered by RAIN. On my website, I've got a lot of resources for educators and administrators. People have written their doctoral dissertations on how using speak in classrooms changes students' acceptance of rape mythology. I also encourage them to enlist the aid of um, any mental health resource people they have in their building, alert the health teacher, alert the counselors that you're going to talk about this book, because this book always helps survivors speak up. And they often trust people in that building sometimes more than their parents. So um, some teachers will teach this book and then bring in the counselor or bring in somebody from um, from the community who's an expert in sexual violence or works for a, a domestic violence shelter. They'll bring in police officers to talk about the laws of consent. Um, turning it into, this is like, this should be a matter of fact discussion, right? Um, the example I like to use with people is that if you have to cross a dark parking lot late at night to get yeah. to your car mm -hmm. and you get hit in the head, you're a victim of assault. And of course, everybody wants to help you and support you as you get better and to get the bad guy, right? And he's to face the consequences. But you tack the word sexual in front of that and you start talking about sexual violence. All of a sudden, people like start like clutching their stomach and, and, and they start like getting really tense and they, because we don't know how to talk about sex in a healthy way in the, in the U.S. You're right. When you attach the word sexual in front of assault, many times I hear people saying, well, what was she wearing? What time was it? Why was she out at that time? It's just absolutely ridiculous. Which, which we have to recognize where those statements come from. We are not that far removed from women's bodies literally being the physical possession of either their fathers or their husbands. 
there's a poem in this book that talks about everything that happened in 1972, right? Yes. Right? I love that I love that one so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, men used to be able to legally rape their wives because their bodies belonged to the men. Um, This goes back to old law back uh, at the time of the American Revolution, and that's based on old law back in England in the, the 15th, 16th centuries. And so this idea that um, it's, it's very twisted, it's also tied up into some really evangelical Christian thoughts that the woman's responsibility is to not tempt the man. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And, and let's be really clear that the people who have made these laws for a long time and benefited from these laws mm-hmm. for a long men. time were men. Mm-hmm. And when women are raised also to make these judgments, right, and to slut shame our yep. sisters. Yeah. And we have a lot of unlearning to do. God, you must be the most incredible mother to your daughters. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't think they would say that. I <laughs> interview them. <laughs> I honestly, I'm just like, oh, you are what all mothers should be like and grandmothers should be like. You're just. But, you know, can I say something about that, though? Yes. You know, I had my kids pretty young. And I think that my kids have taught me so much. I think a lot of what I know is not only my kids, but remember, I've spent 20 years hanging out with teenagers. Um, and I think that my, uh, my, that opportunity to spend so much time listening to teenagers definitely helped make me a much better mother. Mm. If I hadn't written this book and then spent 20 years traveling the country to high schools, I think I would have been like way too intense in terms of my kids and like my expectations and I would have been like that annoying academic mom Well, you could do better. And definitely I am guilty of that, Um, but not as much as I would have been. And so um, it takes a village to raise parents as much as it takes a village to raise children. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, you know, that does remind me too, having children truly is a blessing because I I see it in my mom too, just from my own experience, seeing how she's changed so much. Because again, my sisters are 10 years younger than me, 10 and 11. So that's a huge age gap. And she had 10, 11 extra years to grow up. And she had me at a very early age at 22 or 21. She was still in college. She started her own business with my dad. So she was still doing her own thing. And by the time 10, 11 years later, I see it. She actually is the one who's changed and is able to adapt to change so much faster than I am. When I actually reflect on it from what you were sharing about how you've changed from meeting all these students from your work, I see it too where, oh my goodness, my mom was able to adapt and change as well and become somebody where we can have more conversations. But mm-hmm. I may be the one, now that I'm reflecting on it again from our conversation, I may be the one that needs to start letting go and accept that people can change and trust in humanity in that way where it's like, okay, you don't always have to hold on to those faults and those times where you were really hurt. But, you know, there there can be progress moving forward if both sides are able to come to a meeting point. My goodness, I've learned so much from this conversation. This is a wonderful <laughs> Sunday morning. Um, what I like to do on the show is I love 
getting to know you as a human, getting to know our guests and having those human conversations. My listeners are very wonderfully equipped with the technical questions slash craft questions. Okay, so let me just kick this off with Tracy Kenworth. She says, how do you approach the sensitive research for your the material that you do write that you may need for your books? And do you consider yourself a champion for your readers? I feel like I know the answer for that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's coming directly from her. Okay. And she says she thinks you're wonderful for writing such deep books. Oh, that's so, I mean, it's like, you know, that's so kind. That's just like, I, I've stopped trying to make sense of this incredible life I've been given. Um, but just like to have somebody like that say those nice things. And obviously she's read one or more of my books and they've, 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 helped her somehow and figure out her own life or maybe they just made her smile. That's cool too. Um, so that's just such a huge honor. Oh golly. Now let me see if I can answer the question. Um, the question about sensitive research. Um, uh, I think it's really important, um, to, as a writer, uh, when you're researching to do some self-examination. And usually this happens not before a project, but for me it happens as I'm working on a project um, to understand that we all walk around with unrecognized biases uh, and we don't know what we don't know, um, which is, so you have to kind of, I, I feel, and again, I'm only, I can only speak from my experience. I always want to qualify anything I say about writing with a your mileage may vary statement <laughs> because everybody comes at, at this art through their own pathways. So what I'm about to say might work, might not, you do you. Um, for me, I have to um, be humble. Be humble when I'm, when I'm interviewing people. Um, I, when I'm very, like I wrote a book about eating disorders um, that's probably, um, it's a, it's a horror novel because eating disorders are such, such a devastating mental illness, both to the person struggling with it themselves and the people who love them. And I made a decision after consulting with a number of psychiatrists not to interview anybody who was struggling with an eating disorder when I was talking to them. So the only people that I interviewed were people who had been in an effective recovery for at least a decade. Um, because I didn't, that's, you, you, that would be exploitative if I, you know, talked to, to somebody who was still struggling in it. Um, like I never interviewed my, my, my children's friends. I never put my own children in a book. I can't imagine doing that, but for, for, because to me that would feel like that's exploiting them, my relationship with them. And as a writer, I didn't, you know, want to do that kind of harm. Um, but so, yeah, so being, uh, humility is really important. Um, understand, and it's important when you're writing to pay attention to what's making you cringe a little bit. Uh, it can be a sign that it's something that you probably want to explore deeper if you're having a reaction to it. Um, recognize that when you're a writer and you get angry at something, that's a, anger is such a lovely defensive tool. Uh, but in terms of your craft, if you really want to write well and write pure, you want to explore, why am I feeling defensive? Why am I getting angry about this? And either explore that in free writing in terms of the voice of your character 
or in your own voice um, as the as the author. Um, those are all important stuff. Um, and I can't emphasize enough when you're writing about sensitive issues, when you're writing about something that's rooted in your own emotional truth, you please, please take care of yourselves. Please, babies, I'm begging you. Be loving and sweet and gentle and healthy. Um, all that stuff about people doing their best writing uh, on cocaine or um, boxed wine is a total lie. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will mess you up. And it's bad for your body. And it's really bad for your brain. You're not going to be a great creative person. Um, and, and in fact, what it's causing you to do is that it's numbing you from feelings and imagery that can be really important in your work. So if you can't care about yourself enough in the moment to stay away from, from that kind of stuff, that those behaviors, at least care enough about your art to be healthy so that you can give it your best. Okay. I think Tracy's going to really very much appreciate that and the rest of our community. And the next one we have from Anika Naeem. She wrote, can I just say, I had the chance to meet Lori at a retreat last year and was absolutely blown away by how vivacious, considerate, and passionate she was. She made it a point to sit down with all of the writers, published or not, and speak about our work with us. I will always remember that. My question Lori has written about culture and from perspectives outside of her own. How does she go about respectfully crafting those narratives without delving into problematic representations? Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you, Anika. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Um, Especially for people who grew up in those little white bubbles of privilege like me. Um, If you care about this country... Uh, and you care about art, this is something I hope that, that everyone, everybody's examining, um, not only in your own work, but, um, you know, because I've been advocating for proper, respectful representation of all of our children for a long time. But, but if, if you're, like, mouthing those words, but everybody in your world looks like you, and all the books on your bookshelves look like you, then there's some more things that you can be doing that will enrich and deepen your life. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm most known, I think, for my contemporary uh, YA stuff, and Shout is, is largely about that. But I'm also a big history nerd. I love history. And I love the dream of America, the dream that, that someday we'll become a country where all people are created equal, as we promised ourselves in the Declaration of Independence. But I know that we're a very, very long way from that. And years ago, so the other part of my career has been writing about American history for a slightly younger audience, um, middle grade kids. And I have a trilogy about the American Revolution that looks at it through the lives of children held in slavery in the North during the American Revolution. Um, and uh, I wrote those books at the, um, I w- wrote the first one at the with the encouragement of my editor, uh, a wonderful black man who then Really, we, we really talked about race for months and months before I wrote um, the first book, Chains. And working with him, um, his name is Kevin Lewis, incredibly talented and gifted editor and outstanding human being. I just love him. Um, I realized that, you know, in order to write outside my own culture, in order to write outside my own gender and 
um, I've never written about a, a gay characters. I've only ever written about heterosexual relationships. Um, I have to take a lot more time, years more time, um, many, many more years of research and checking in with people. Um, uh, you know, I use a lot of different, I don't know that sensitivity reader is the right phrase. Maybe we should call people willing to do that work and be paid for it reality check readers. Mm. Um, it's not about being sensitive. It's about being true. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I obviously, um, I'm sure there are some people who disagree with me and I'd love to chat with them and listen to their take on it. But I think sometimes artists are called to get outside of themselves because we'd want to get outside of ourselves when we experience our book too. But from my perspective, when you're writing outside of your own cultural and historical, uh, emotional, physical background, um, if to do, to be a good upstanding human, you are called to put in all the extra time and energy. And if you don't want to commit to that extra time and energy, that's cool. Then write about something that is part of your story instead. Mm, yes. Oh, that was so good. That's something that's often talked about in our community. And I, I receive a lot of emails from listeners who ask, hey, I know this is kind of out of my lane, but I wonder, do you think this is okay for me to write? So I am just going to point them to your episode. Okay. <laughs> and if I may say, and I'm trying really hard not to be a bitch about this, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's probably a white person. Mm-hmm. White male, <laughs> As- white men. Oh, White men, right? Asking your permission. And um, and then they're going to hold up that little label. I got permission to write this. Y'all can't be mad at me. Um, and um, if you feel the need to get permission to, to write that story, then you have not done your homework yet. And you, you're suspicious and you don't want to do it. You just want to be able to say in your query letter, I've shared this story when you really haven't. You've just talked to people about it with... <laughs> People, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. Uh-huh. That's utopism at its absolute worst. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's lazy writing. Mm-hmm. Do the work. Okay, now next. <laughs> we have Catherine Locke, who said, I adore Lori. She is so incredibly kind and giving and genuine. I think my biggest question is how she would recommend building emotional and mental resilience to stay in publishing for the long haul. Publishing can be so draining sometimes. Oh, that is such a great question. I know. Ooh-wee. Um, um, give yourself permission to walk away from it. I've had, and for me, I've had, so I've, I've had a couple of seven-year cycles. I don't know what every, everyone's got their own seasons, right, in their lives. And I have twice come to the brink of walking away. First time was seven years after I started. Second time was 14, which means I'm probably due again next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because it is, if you had told me when I started writing that I would be putting in as many hours every week as I still put in, like I I would probably have, my mother always wanted me to go to nursing school. That was always going to be my fallback plan. So it's like, yeah, mom was right. Um, it is way harder than anybody is can, that anybody wants to admit, and and the, the it's challenging to discuss this with people who have not been published yet 
or for people who have only had one or two books published. Because we've somehow allowed this fantasy of what the life of an author is to take hold. Um, to have a, to sustain a writing life and to to feed yourself and your family and pay your bills through what you're earning in the writing life is a very difficult job. Um, and, and, and it's a winding path. So there might be years when you're like, okay, I don't have any good ideas right now. Or my last book didn't sell as well, and I'm really feeling the pressure. So you have permission to go and take a, a, a day job for a while. You know, you will figure out how to write around the edges, um, the way we, most of us do with most of our writing, the edges of time, because you spend all day doing your day job or you're on a book tour. So you have to write early in the morning or late at night or on the airplane. Um, expect that change is the default. Uh, and you just, um, the, that, that, that's the first piece. The second piece is to surround yourself in community, create your community of people that you can really, really trust, um, who are also creative. They don't have to be writers, but who, who dig the creativity. Um, and the third, I think, is uh, recognizing the only thing you can control as a writer is the quality of the book. That's the only thing you can control. And that has very often very little to do with your publishing experience. So you have to write for yourself and really enjoy that process of writing and always be in that process of writing. Don't publish a book and then spend two years publicizing it and then get down to write the next book. You should always have your creativity flowing, even if it's just a little trickle of a creek of you know poems or journal entries on a busy day, because that's how you keep your energy and, and your creative well filled. Um, if you're worrying too much um, about a review or about, oh, I don't have enough followers, um, that's going to flatten out your writing and make you really sad. And lastly, never Google your own name. <laughs> Just there's <laughs> nothing to be gained, nothing to be gained. And you know, the bad thing is if you Google your name and you find nice things, you're screwed. Because it's like, it's like how I've never done heroin, thank goodness, but it's, <laughs> I've, I've read a lot of accounts of people who do heroin who say that first high is so overwhelming that you chase that high through the rest of your addiction and you can never get it back again. Because mm. you're going to, if you find somebody says something super nice and you, when you Google your name or you like go on certain reviewing sites, um, you're going to get this blast of dopamine in your brain that's going to ruin you forever. Um, because then you're going to become like the poor monkey in the cage who was subjected to that terrible scientific treatment, always pushing the button, hoping for the reward. And you're, you're always going to be chasing that high and you're never going to get it again. And instead, you're going to get beat up time and time again until you feel like you are worthless. And um, don't give your power of self-respect to other people. When you're chasing reviews, when you're chasing those, those pings, those likes, those numbers, those false metrics, you are giving your power of self-respect to people who don't know you. 
That was so good. Lori, come on now. That's just unfair. I mean, like, you know, you I'm need to you, like. This is, this, I'm an old, all right? It's good to be an old because you can learn a lot. You are our Yoda, okay? <laughs> Yoda, you are, okay? Really- Thank you for that. I, you know what? I need to hold on to you for a little bit longer. I'm Please. so sorry to it's do this so to you. Fun. Looping this back to what we talked about earlier about speak and it being banned, I can't help but wonder, and this is something that just popped up in my head too, so I want to ask you before I let you go, how do you think Shout will be received now? <laughs> because this is a thing, right? Because this is a thing. We have the Me Too movement. We have Time's Up, which is also pushing for equality for women, which is along the same lines. I feel like they work beautifully together symbiotically. Me too and time's up. We have so many humans who feel like it is their time to speak up. I would think that schools are more ready. But what worried me was when you mentioned that just recently on Twitter, a teacher told you that, what was it, a a parent wasn't comfortable or something? Like, so it worries me. Are we still at the time when Speak came out? But I can't help but feel like, no, it's got to be different now. It's got to be different. It's got to be. I feel like your book is going to be like, you know, when people are thirsty and they're dehydrated and it's this, 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 the water that they needed for so long. So how, how do you, what do, what do you think? Well, I think first of all, Shout is a crossover book. I'm published on the kid side of the publishing house because I write for teenagers and for younger kids. But, you know, in the way that teens read a lot of adult books and adult read, uh, adults read a lot of YA, I think this, uh, I, I just, I've heard from some booksellers, bookstore owners, that they're going to be putting this uh, on the adult section as well. Because oh. these questions of identity, of, of, um, of sexuality, of boundaries, of growth, um, and, all, and all these cultural movements that we have right now, Thank you, Tarana Burke, by the way, for the Me, Me Too hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, we always need to lift her name up when yes. we're having these discussions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, that, so, so, so I think it's going to be, um, and I think as it gains more currency in the world of adult readers, because school administrators are special, then they'll have, they'll have more comfort putting it in the classroom. Um, and, you know, when Speak First came out 20 years ago, well, you we saw some very brave and forward-thinking English teachers start to use it, but the schools would only let them teach it to second-semester seniors in high school. And the, the common thought was, well, they're going to college soon. We need to tell them about these things. F- flash forward to the present, where it's most commonly taught to ninth graders and occasionally eighth graders. Um, it's also caught, taught on college campuses. Um, so, uh, but, but shout is much more intense than speak is. Um, we have a generation of teachers. I now meet teachers at teachers conferences who read speak when they were in ninth grade, which is kind of really thrilling. This is my secret plan to take over the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I had this incredible generation of readers and like, they're becoming doctors and they're becoming incredible politicians. And I'm like, yes, these are my people. Here we go. But shout, I'll be interested to see 
I've gotten a lot of support from the education community, the National Council of Teachers of English. They're the new generation of English teachers, you should look into this. I think this would be interesting for you to, to maybe talk about in your program sometime. There's, um, there's this grassroots efforts called nerd camps where teachers get together and authors and have kind of these unconferences that mm. are outside of the traditional formal organizations of professional organizations. And then there's a group called Project Litcom that's another grassroots organization led by brilliant teachers who just want to get awesome books in the hands of young readers because we know, we know that if kids read books, they become more empathetic. They become more skilled and um, emotionally intelligent about their own lives. Right. And Mm -hmm. we better prepare them for adult life. So I have a lot of faith in these teachers. I think that when they begin to bring shout into the classroom, we're going to have another whole wave of controversy because I talk about, are you ready for this? We have to whisper the word because mm. America apparently can't say menstruation yet without blushing. There's poetry about penises and periods and all the P words, which is reflective of our world. Yes. And if you're going to create art, all you have to do is hold up a mirror and you're guaranteed to make a lot of people nervous. That was so good. Okay, now, Lori, what was your ultimate favorite piece in Shout that you wrote? Or it could be the most transformative for you. Ooh. Oh, man. I know it's hard. They're it all is really so good. Hard. I'm sorry. They're see, all you really good. You see the 400 poems that I threw out. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, there's a really funny poem in this book. This is not all rage and, and sadness um, that I really love about um, my relationship with uh, Ken, Barbie's boyfriend, Kendall. I had so much fun writing that one. There's a poem called Ultima Thule towards the end. Yes. In the arc, it's 259. Oh, and you should know anybody who read the arc that the people at the printing press really screwed up a lot of the line breaks. So if you were thinking, reading the arc and going, wow, this is not great poetry, no. take a look at the line breaks in the published book, and it's much better. <laughs> but Ultima Thule is the poem where I think I was finally able to set down on paper what it feels like to be one of the aunties of children's literature. And there are many of us, so especially those of us who write for teens, we are the aunties and uncles to them. Um, and it's so exciting to see the new generation, people like Nick Stone, Angie Thomas, uh, Evie's a boy, these new generation of, of aunties coming up and uncles like Jason Reynolds. But these kids, kids need villages, right? Kids need they're nuclear families, but often nuclear families are under such pressure, like mine was, um, that you need to have other loving, trustworthy adults in your lives. And that's where extended family comes in, um, uh, teachers, faith community members, the lady of uh, the kids next door, and sometimes authors. And Ultima Thule is the poem where I talk about what that feels like to be that, that, that adult in the room when kids come to you with their stuff. 
Okay, now because this is a podcast as well for many writers who actually a majority are beginner writers, and I'm quite Mm. proud after they've been with us for three years. Now many of them have literary agents, um, and I'm proud of them for that. And for the new listeners who may be approaching the querying trenches, do you, as I know you are an auntie to all the authors, do you have any advice on how they can approach the querying process or even wishing them luck? Oh, gosh, I wish them all the luck in the world. Um, In my experience, people tend to start querying for agents a little bit too early in the writing process. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, You might want to make sure not only that you have the full manuscript done, (laughs) but that you've put it away for a couple of months and haven't looked at it and started working on the next book. Um, Because you're only going to get one shot with that agent. And you want to make sure it's, to borrow from Lin-Manuel Miranda, your best shot, right? (laughs) You don't want to throw it away. Don't want to throw it away. Um, But let's assume that you've gone through all those steps and you have written an astounding piece of work, right? And it still gets rejected. Um, My advice to you is the advice I gave my kids when they got rejected from colleges. If the person that you're reaching out to cannot see the value in you, or the value in your work, then clearly they're not somebody that you want to have a long-term relationship with. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. They don't hold all the cards. You both have a hand of cards here, right? And you're trying to figure out, are we going to bridge between me, the artist, and you, the representative of the artist? Um, You don't want that person just to kind of take you on grudgingly. But what happens is when you're starting out, that looks like an approval or a disapproval. It looks like a judgment on your writing. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might be, I just don't know. This is like so new, so avant-garde, so cutting edge. I don't know how I would even begin to place it. Um, so what you do is you recognize that is um, that rejection is an opportunity to grow stronger. Um, You take the rejection, you go back, you lick your wounds, you bitch to your friends for a while, say, you you, you subtweet people. (laughs) Then you have to look at the work and decide, is it them or is it the work? And remember, it's not you. We're not talking about you. If you want to have a relationship with somebody, then you date them. You're asking somebody to evaluate your work. You have to separate yourself from the work. Um, and it's so hard. I know all these things. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so glibly saying all this stuff. Like, it's so hard. Oh, my gosh. Um, so that's, that, that, that's a part of it. Um, uh, you, can, and you always have the option to quit. The harshest thing I ever heard an agent say, whoo, this was cold. It was at a writer's conference that I had organized about 22 years ago. And this agent was getting ready to retire, thank goodness. And she was like, done. She was done. (laughs) She shouldn't have even showed up that day. She didn't even, you know. And the room was so packed because we were all hungry to connect to this agent, right? And we were all pretty new to the the industry. This is before the internet, right? So we didn't have any of those outlets. Um, 
And so the room was so packed if the, the fire inspector could have shut the whole thing down because I was breaking all the laws by letting that money bodies in the room. So this agent, and the agent couldn't smoke in the hotel yet. She was really pissed about that. So she's dying for a cigarette. She's done. She gets to the front of the room and she looks around. And we are silent, waiting for her pearls of wisdom. And she says, there's a lot of you people in this room who should quit writing and take up the guitar. Ice formed on the walls, like souls shriveled and burst into flames, right? That was the biggest wave of negativity I have ever experienced as a human being. It was horrible. Oh, my God. Horrible, right? And, and, and we were all so vulnerable in that moment. We were all just dying for her to say, I, for her to read our minds like, like she was Vulcan or something and go, oh, my God, I can see your manuscript hovering above your head and I want it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but look at, you know, so it was, it was like the worst situation ever. And the nice thing about worst situations ever is you can learn so much from them, right? And so we learned a lot that day about unrealistic expectations. We learned a lot that day about what professional writers act like and what professional agents act like. Um, and we, I began that day to learn about separating my art, the craft and passion and inspiration piece that's all mine from the business. And the business is a very, very separate animal from the art. Um, and the more you can think about those differences and, and how you as a creative person are going to kind of manage the balance between them, the better equipped you will be for submitting. Does that make any sense? Yes, very much so. What have you read, whether it's recently or since, you know, not recently, that has really touched you emotionally and opened you up? And really hit all those, all those parts of us that make us human. And you're like, holy shit, I have been transformed. This mm. is what it's like to write. This is what mm. it means to write. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question. Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I, I, I'm, I can't be articulate about that book because it is such um, a powerful book. That's a, a life-changing book. And I encourage, I, I read about half of my books on, through my ears on audiobook. Um, and Roxanne recorded it um, herself. And it's worth, it's one of those books I feel it's worth, not only is it worth rereading over and over again and, out, and lining passages and writing notes to yourself in the margins, but give yourself the pleasure and privilege of listening to her read it a few times. It will elevate you uh, as a writer, certainly. Um, and if you have a heart beating in your chest, it will grow your heart. Gosh, that was the best review of any book ever. My goodness. (laughs) Thank you, Lori. You are so incredible. Please let the listeners know where they can find you online. Oh, listeners, you can find me everywhere online because I'm a writer and I need to procrastinate. (laughs) That's why the gods made Twitter. 
So I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Halts Anderson, H-A-L-S-E-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. I'm also on the Facebook for, the, for that's where a lot of my educator friends are and my aunts <laughs> and my cousins. And they just made me, my publishers made me do a page on Facebook as well as having a personal Facebook, but it's pretty much the same content. I'm struggling with Tumblr right now uh, because of their recent policy changes. I might be abandoning that. And then um, there's a lot of resources on my website for anybody who's been through any of the experiences in my books. Also, like for Speak, the Speak graphic novel has just been translated into Spanish and French. It's going to be translated into a bunch of other languages. So we're putting up links. So for people who want to experience the book in other languages, um, that'll be available too. So I think that's pretty much it. Also, apparently I'm going to be visiting every single city in America this year. Amazing. (laughs) That's what it feels like. So just check out my website or one of my social media platforms and I'll come and see you too. Okay. This is so exciting. We'll have all those listed on your show notes page and on your website also that lists all the resources for anyone who's gone through any of the experiences that we've talked about throughout the conversation. So thank you so much for that. Lori, this was so heart-filling this Sunday morning, now nearly afternoon, but thank you so much for this. I'm so, I'm really so glad we did this. Uh, you know, I feel the same way. I feel like, like uh, we should, like, I feel like we've been sitting in a coffee shop right. and now it's almost lunchtime and we should order some soup. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I might go for some pho. I don't know about you. Some Vietnamese oh, pho, awesome. right? <laughs> yes. Please. I hope we get to meet in person. I hope so too. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Lori. Have an amazing Sunday. Okay. You too. Until the next time, my friend. And that wraps up our episode with Lori Haltz Anderson. Thank you so much, Lori, for such a raw, honest, genuine conversation. You are such an awe-inspiring author and human being. Thank you. Thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Lori over on her social media. She's at Halts Anderson over on Twitter. And don't forget to also head over to Lori's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Lori dash Halts dash Anderson to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, all the shareable quotes, and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am so excited about our partnership with Four Sigmatic. Growing up with an Asian immigrant upbringing from both my Taiwanese roots and my Malaysian roots, I'm all too familiar with eating and drinking herbs and roots in our teas and soups and even desserts. That's all super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body like boosting the immune system and soothing muscle cramps to improving brain function and alleviating anxiety. I found Four Sigmatic at a grocery store and immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, and chaga. So Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. I'm honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. I'm talking about infusing the superfoods into mainstream products including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, 
hot cacaos, matcha, superfood blends, and this makes it really accessible to those of you who've never tried them before. I know there's a ton of you coffee drinkers in our community, so you're gonna love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane that supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane has been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. I could not recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual go-to drink to kickstart the day with super focused writing sprints, for example. And the mushroom coffee with lion's mane is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. I've tried this several times with different enhancers like oat milk. I also swear by ghee butter and add that to nearly everything. And when I tried the ghee butter with this mushroom coffee, I loved the nuttier flavor and creamier texture. All of their drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single serve packets, add hot water, and voila, you have your drink. I also need to recommend their other drink called Mushroom Hot Cacao Mix with Reishi. Oh my god, this one tastes just like a cup of hot chocolate that also comes with the benefits of reducing stress. Okay, just one more recommendation. They have a mushroom matcha drink. I cannot even. Okay, I'm gonna stop right here because I can go on. So head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea and explore all their different products for yourself. I'm super pumped that they created a special offer of 15% off for our storytellers. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea or use discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 cups of tea and I wanna hear what you think about the drinks. So tag me at 88 cups of tea to let me know. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 cups of tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.